Hey everyone, I hope you're all doing well out there. If you're a current MFA student, I hope the first couple weeks of the new semester have been smooth for you. If you're an MFA applicant this season, hopefully you're getting plenty of sleep while waiting to hear back from schools. I know the wait can be kind of excruciating, but just remember to be kind to yourself. Before we get to episode 17, I just want to remind everyone to check out MFAWriters.com for more information about the fantastic emerging writers we have on the show. There you'll find links to their work and to any resources we mention in this episode. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for updates about past guests, as well as information on opportunities in the MFA and literary world. And if you have time to leave a review, preferably on Apple Podcasts, we'd greatly appreciate it. These reviews help us improve and help other people find the show. In the last couple of weeks, we've received some really heartwarming reviews, like this one from Important Ninja 537 who wrote, Wish I'd found this while applying to MFAs. This podcast has, no joke, become one of my favorite listens in a matter of days. If you feel an MFA is your true path, I beg you to lend an ear. I wish that I'd found this resource when I was applying to schools. The host always knows the perfect questions to ask, and getting a perspective of different MFA programs straight from actual students feels invaluable. Thank you so much for that, and thank you to all who are listening now. We are so glad to have you here. Enjoy the episode. MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Sarah Ruth Bates. Sarah is a second year nonfiction MFA candidate at the University of Arizona, where she edits the program's student run literary magazine, The Sonora Review, and teaches composition. She's also a writing instructor at Grub Street. Her work is published or forthcoming in the New York Times. Guernica, the Boston Globe Magazine, Aeon, Hobart, Essay Daily, Off Assignment, and elsewhere. Today, she's going to read a shortened version of an essay published in the winter-slash-spring issue of Appalachia Journal titled Seasonal Effective Reorder. It's the second least attractive New England season. My mom and I are on a walk. The least attractive New England season is the gray sludgy stage of late winter, when the leftover snow has cohered into gritty piles that refuse to melt. We're just past that now, early spring. Last fall's leaves carpet the ground still whole. The snow preserved them, the sun has melted them out, and they look like they might have just fallen. The world is simple here. Creamy sky, pen sketch trees, leaf carpet. I know these are last fall's leaves and that this now is the inhale before spring. If I'd been dropped here without knowing the date, though, I wouldn't have been able to tell if it was a late fall or an early spring day, snow coming or going, days shuddering or opening. I'd flown home from graduate school in Arizona a week prior, planning to stay 10 days for spring break. I had not flown back. Instead, I taught and took classes from my childhood bedroom. My parents and I walked most afternoons, often near water, the Charles River or a reservoir, lush excesses for me after months in the desert. Fog hovered above ponds. Droplets condensed on pine needles. Such decadence. I'd been living where spots that show up blue on the map run dry more often than wet. 
Time passed and felt like it didn't. My life, resuming, would have happened in Tucson. The world had impossibly paused. The usual time markers meant nothing. No classes or teaching or talks or parties or groceries or appointments. For you too, I know. On Zoom calls, I watched the natural light in Arizona windows not fade as my face darkened. I refreshed my email for word on when I'd be expected back in classrooms. We are assessing the situation. Crocus is up. We are not sure at this time. Magnolia bloomed. We will not resume in-person classes this spring. The maples pressed out celery green buds. These days, we often walk in the meadow near our house. The grass is patchy yellow. The landscape's not ugly, but scrubby. In a usual year around this time, the colleges roll carpets of sod over their own scraggly grass. This year, they are skipping commencement, leaving the grass to grow on its own time. Here in the meadow, it will be a while. Sometimes, even before the virus, real life, life in American society, seemed to me imagined and absurd, business casual, fistfights over sports teams. That's magnified now. The pandemic has punched through the walls of our sets. I talk to my grad school cohort from my parents' backyard. They say I look green-screened into my background. The scene I'm in appears faked. I take walks to find breaks from real work at the computer. But which reality is capable of a pause? I walk and remember again that the world still is, and that it continues, and that I am just running in place inside a small and walled-off part of it. In the woods, the staticky hum of news and anxiety quiets. The pines have put out their new growth, bright and tender as a pear. That line, if a tree falls and no one hears it, does it make a sound? The arrogance of it. We thought our man-made world had inevitability. So much less of it was essential than our egos wanted to believe. There's a rare genetic disorder that makes people unable to sleep. It comes on in adulthood. When it comes, it kills. The mind and body cannot stay on all the time. Rest has to balance activity. You have to go back into the putting together place sometimes. In the meadow, the grass has grown as high as my knee. I watch the wind whiffle it. The sky is as bright a promise as you can believe. My dad says the cure to jet lag is to walk outside during the sunset. You speak to the animal of your body in a language she understands. These months unfold that exposure. I'm showing my body the seasons. Today, the maples have unfurled their leaves like a thousand thousand tiny, bright, still-drooped umbrellas, a thousand thousand brave forays back into this world. Sarah, thanks for being here and, and thanks for reading for us. Thank you. So let me just start by saying I, I read this. I loved it. But I was like surprised to find myself like quite moved by it, honestly, like I haven't read much creative writing related to the pandemic because honestly, I just wanted to like avoid it as much as possible. Like the pandemic's on my mind so much. I thought like if I could avoid thinking about it, limiting my exposure to it might save my mind in the same way that like limiting my ex the exposure of my body to it um, might save my health. But this piece made me realize how wrong that idea was and how much I need to read creative writing about the pandemic. Um, whether it's poetry or fiction, or in this case, nonfiction, just to like connect with other human beings who are going through this at the same time. Um, and just to remember just how much connects us all and to remember that everything is a shared experience, that we're never really alone. So thank you for that. And first off, how are you doing? 
Well, thank you so much. That's so kind and generous. And I do want to be the obligatory, like let you off the hook and say, I don't think that there's a wrong way to do any of this because it's, I mean, indescribable and strange and we're still here and that's what we can do. But yeah, I wouldn't have, it's funny because I don't usually write about things that have just happened, but, um, I had a, I have a friend who edits at Appalachia and she put out a call and I was, um, staying here and I did feel like I was having these weirdly potent experiences with being outside because the nature of Arizona is so different from like what I'm kind of native to what I'm used to. Um, and yeah, I think I'm doing okay. Um, to answer your question. (laughs) Yeah, it's a hard question to answer because the definition of okay seems to change daily, at least for me. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. Um, Oh, yeah. So are you still in New England or are you back in Arizona? I am. This is my childhood room. This is where (laughs) everything still happens. Have you been writing a lot about the pandemic or was this kind of a one-off thing? Not really. I mean, this has been a weird time for me because my, so before I started grad school for writing, I always wrote, but my like formal training was in medical ethics. And I like spent a year working with doctors and spent a couple of years doing health policy. So like healthcare was kind of where my brain lived for a long time. And now that we're in this time, healthcare is kind of where everyone's brains are living. So I have written like things related to the pandemic, but, um, mostly they're things that have been percolating for me for a long time anyway. And I sort of pegged them to things that are happening now, Hmm. but generally I really love that long, like angle of retrospect between the past self and the writing self. I feel like that helps me write essays that I can feel like I want to share with other people rather than like that for me is the differentiation between journal and not. Uh, Well, I was particularly drawn to this revelation that occurs in the speaker and the piece when you write that line, if a tree falls and no one hears it, does it make a sound? The arrogance of it. We thought our man-made world had inevitability. So much less of it was essential than our egos wanted to believe. Um, Some might find this idea of our insignificance to be a little depressing, but there's a freedom in that idea, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of the things that make us miserable, like the strictures of how we need to be, have kind of fallen away in a way that I find freeing during this time. Like even just the not having to wear quote unquote real pants. <laughs> just like like what is real? What counts as being a functioning adult? I like that that's shifting. Yeah. I mean, and another thing that I found interesting about this piece, um, there are moments when you point out the ways we've like tried to control nature or at the very least, like lost some connection to it. Um, like when you mentioned the way colleges like roll out sod at graduation, which is such like a unnatural thing to do, or the moment when your classmates see your parents' backyard and assume it must be a green screen because there's just like a disconnect there. Um, do you think that the pandemic has given us an opportunity to reconnect with nature at all and reevaluate our place in it? Yeah, I've definitely found that. I mean, I've always loved being outside, going on walks, going on hikes. Um, and I love that this like nature that I'm in right now in my 
parents' neighborhood in their kind of climate, it doesn't feel any different to be in it than it used to. And it's about the only place in the world that I can say that about, really. Um, But mostly just being outside, as long as you're not around any other people, it could be, you know, 2010, which is so rare. Yeah, it's really surreal, right? Um, And just that idea that like you, you can, if you go out in nature right now, nature's doing fine. In some mm-hmm. ways, it, it might even be doing a little bit better, you know, a little bit of a break from like carbon emissions. Um, but yeah, I don't know. For, for me, like I've actually had in a weird way more time to like go outside and like just go for walks, which has been really nice and reminded me that of like the healing nature of the outdoors um, and how like getting out of my apartment helps me get out of my head. Is it the same for you? Yeah, definitely. That's kind of my medicine. Like I try to meditate, but I really struggle with it. But like, if I have a weekend and I don't really know what I'm doing, I like to just like get a breakfast sandwich, go to some kind of park and just like walk with whatever questions and thoughts and whatever is in my brain and kind of let it run for a while. Like that's my, I kind of need that. Is So do you try to incorporate that stuff as like an active part of your writing process? Yeah. I mean, it's also just sort of a part of like living and detoxing a little bit. You know, it's, I feel like the kinds of things that I work through when I do that are going to be the distractions when I write, if I don't deal with them, you know, just sort of anxieties, like what's this semester going to look like, things like that. I like to do that, especially at the beginning of a term, just to kind of be like, this will be my week. These will be the days when I will work. Well, I mean, you said that you try to do meditation. I mean, uh, walking outdoors to me is like a form of meditation. Um, And in this piece, there are some like wonderful moments that blur those like contrived barriers we've created between ourselves and nature. There are the lines in the piece that describe the world as inhaling and exhaling. And also that moment when you write, my dad says the cure to jet lag is to walk outside during the sunset. You speak to the animal of your body in a language she understands. I love that line. I really love that line. Thank you. Uh, Yeah. And you mentioned that your background is in science, um, bioethics to be specific. How do you think your knowledge of science and biology influences your work? Ooh, um, That's an interesting question. I guess I think I grew up in a very um, cerebral little world of like liberal um, Boston area. And there wasn't, there was sort of, there was a lot of emphasis on intellectual achievement, I think. Not so much in my house, but just sort of in the culture that I grew up in. And you kind of forget that you're a body sometimes. And I think that being in the hospital, um, taking, uh, not as a patient, um, like the work that I've done there, it, it reminds you, um, like, it's sad that we have to look to the body's fallibility to remember that it's even there, that it's us. But I think anytime we can connect with that knowledge that we're not just brains, being walked around, which is sort of something that academia gets us to think anytime we can like reset and take a breath and recognize what a breath is, is just useful. So how do we foster that mindset? 
is writing a way to foster it? Yes, I think so in part because you can't like to write something good. You have to write something true, especially in nonfiction and to have it be true. It has to reckon with an understanding of the fact that we're all animals, I think. So I think writing requires you to try to become a better human in all the ways, just like any kind of art making does, which isn't to say that I feel like I'm doing that. <laughs> well, I think you are doing that because, um, because I think it's not only about connecting with ourselves, but also about connecting with other people. And I really got that from this piece. Like, I mean, the isolation I've felt off and on throughout this entire pandemic faded a little bit as I was reading your piece, you know, it, it, whatever it is I'm going through is not, um, unique to me. It's, it's something everyone's going through right now. Although this piece that you read has memoir elements to it, you told me that you really love writing researched and idea driven nonfiction, um, as well as essays that explore intersections of the personal and the conceptual, um, for anyone who doesn't know, perhaps you could tell us what you mean by that and, and why you think those projects resonate so much with you. Yeah, I think that that is um, a really exciting area of nonfiction that a lot of people's work um, kind of falls into. But that's like your Maggie Nelson, Eulipus, um, like neighborhoods of work. But um, yeah, I think I studied philosophy in undergrad and I really loved it, but I love that the essay, especially as it interacts with research and just stuff, the world outside the self lets us kind of engage with that interest or the heat is like the writing-y word um, that we feel towards whatever that entity is. Um, but you can bring your feelings into it. Like in academic writing, you have to be so certain, you have to have a take, you have to convince other people of that. And I love taking uncertainty as the subject of the work and the action of the work. Um, I think, yeah, it's just ever since I discovered that kind of writing, I've really loved reading it and loved kind of trying to do it. And I think it also lets us, um, there's so much siloing that happens in, in academia and just in, in knowledge growth right now. And I think the essay allows us to map the connections across those walls that, that have always been there, but that we kind of forget because people go into their separate work areas, but you can, um, you can combat that entropy a little bit, I think through essay. Well, you told me that you worked on a um, concept-driven book for two years while you were working a day job before applying to MFA program. <laughs> yeah, it's like everyone does that, right? <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, can you tell us about that project and, and maybe why you decided um, to pursue an MFA after even after doing that on your own for so long? Yeah, yeah, um, totally. So basically, I was going to... Breadloaf Writers Conference, um, which is a great um, space for for writers. It's like 10 days in the Vermont woods um, with a bunch of really incredible people from all over. And it's sort of centered around a writing workshop. And I was working with David Shields and I was really, really nervous going in because 
um, a lot of people in the workshop had brought a memoir. Um, and I had pages about mechanical ventilation and this crazy incident in Copenhagen. And I didn't show up in the piece. And I was just, I like really, really was afraid to walk into the workshop because I just thought this isn't the kind of thing that it needs to be. Like people aren't even going to want to touch it. But instead it was this incredibly magical moment where David said, he picked out a line about um, basically aughts about like moral rules shifting because of changing circumstances. And it was a long, weird line. And he said, you know what, if I were you, I would write a book about that. Do you want me to talk about how I would do it? And I was like, yes, I do, please. And so then he spent the rest of the workshop using that idea and the particular story of ventilation and mapping out how he and his brilliance would go about researching a book about that, which was basically like, read as much as you can about this topic and look for the like glimmers of interest that you have with it and just generate tons and tons and tons and tons of material across like every kind of genre barrier you can think of and then comb through it and kind of collage it together in this um, in a way that sort of follows the drift of your mind through the material, which I, th this part is the reason I applied to MFAs <laughs> because, um, so I left and I had this word doc with this reading list that I still work off of. Um, he gave me all these books to read. Um, and so in the mornings before my job, I was just like reading them, taking notes, trying to kind of do the material gathering stuff. And I just ended up with all of these pages, um, spanning all these different topics because it was also about autopsy and also about um, broken airplanes that don't work anymore and what gets done with them and just all these different kinds of circumstantial stories. And um, then I was trying to think about how to put it together. And I basically was like, this can't be done in hours stolen before work. And I don't think it can be done by me alone or just I felt like it would it would serve the project best if I could bring it to a place where there would be mentorship and structure and other people who were trying to do similar things. So then I applied to grad school. Well, I mean, I think that is a great reason to apply to grad school. Thank you. I think if you're working on a project or if your writing gets in general gets to a point where you feel like you've taken it as far as you can on your own, that's a good reason to seek out people who are doing it for a living to work with and get advice from and, and, um, and uh, focus on that within the program for a bit. Um, so is that something you're still working on in the program? Yeah, I I took seriously the idea that you shouldn't go into an MFA and necessarily expect your book to be the thing that you apply with, or at least that's something that is talked about at U of A. And so I wanted to stay open to other kinds of projects, but now in my second year as it comes time for thesis proposal, I feel pretty sure that this is the one that I want to want to write. So how far along are you in it? If that's, if that's even possible to answer? Well, I just really don't know. I mean, it's hard too, because so because I was in Arizona and I wanted a draft by the end of my time, I was focusing on like, because this is such a concept like driven project 
there are a lot of particular circumstances I could use to illustrate the points and think about them. And I had started it. I mean, basically, there's a lot of stuff that I would need to be in Arizona in a non-pandemic world to do. But it can also shift forms. And um, I don't know how far along I am. There are a lot of pages, but they're not um, ones that would make sense to other brains. <laughs> well, it has to make sense to your brain first, I guess. So that's the first step. Um, so you ended up in Tucson at the University of Arizona, um, which is a three-year fully funded program with tracks in poetry, fiction, nonfiction. Uh, it's a fairly small program with a excellent student-teacher ratio of nine faculty to 36 students, according to the website. Um, the program boasts of small workshops and the ability to work closely with a world-class faculty. Seeing as you decided to pursue the MFA to find mentorship while working on your book, I'm wondering how supportive you found the faculty to be. Yeah, they've been great. They um, Folks are really happy to meet with people in office hours, whether you're in their class or not. Um, and yeah, they they really think of the MFA as this um, kind of arc, I think, where in your first year you're um, generating a lot of work and trying a bunch of new things, and then you're sort of honing that, and then you um, go into your thesis tunnel. But throughout all of that, I think the faculty are kind of attuned to where people are in the process and happy to meet with them and try to further things. And they, they calibrate their suggestions to where you're at. They don't try to blow up your manuscript if you're a third year in the spring. So have you found that like, you've been able to get like one-on-one mentorship with some faculty members? I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does that usually look like? I have always liked to stop by office hours and folks have those. So I think that's a great way to just kind of bounce ideas. Um, during this time, it's mostly on zoom that we'll do that. Um, but yeah, mostly it's one-on-one meetings. Sometimes towards the end of a class, teachers will like take the class to coffee or something, which is nice. That is nice. I mean, one of the big perks of an MFA program is like getting some mentorship and one-on-one time. But I mean, I don't know about your professors, but mine are so busy. They have so much going on that I don't understand how they handle it all. So, um, you know, I'm sure there are situations or programs where um, even though the faculty might have really good intentions for mentorship, um, there might not be a lot of time for it. So I'm glad that you are finding um, some of that support there. Let's get into some like nuts and bolts stuff for anyone considering Arizona. Um, I I mentioned it's a fully funded program. According to the website, students receive tuition remission, health insurance, and a stipend around $16,000 although there are about $1,300 in fees each year um, to keep in mind. Are those numbers still correct in your um, experience? Yes, I think that's all correct. The fees have sometimes been waived when the, I'm not sure where the money has come from, but when the college has found or the department or the program, I'm sorry, I don't know like the sourcing of those funds, but they were, um, they have been waived previously. They currently were not um, having that, but of course there's not um, a lot of extra money in university systems right now. And then as part of the program, students are asked to teach three classes each year from what I can tell. What's your teaching load been and what kind of classes have you taught? 
Yeah, U of A shifted from, it used to be a few years ago, a 2-2 model. So teaching two courses per semester, and now it's 1-2. So um, in a year, you'll have a semester of teaching one class and a semester of teaching two classes. And the default is that you teach freshman composition, um, which is a required course um, at U of A. And so you get students from all across the university. Um, we have a pretty small course cap on that, although it has grown slightly um, since pandemic. But um, yeah, that was in person. Obviously, now it's been online. And then in your second and third years, you can apply to teach creative writing. Oh, cool. So is that something you've applied to do? Yeah, I haven't um, had that opportunity, but I'm hopeful to um, be able to do it next year. Fingers crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. I, my program, we, we also teach comp um, and we don't have the option to teach creative writing classes, but I would love to I would love to teach a freshman like workshop, like fiction 101 or something. Um, yeah. I'm dying to to teach the nonfiction workshop hopefully next year. And then you're also teaching an online class on essay writing at Grub Street this February. Was was that an opportunity that came through the school in some way? No, that was um, basically I just like had lived in Boston for um, essentially my whole life accepting undergrad. And so I sort of started my writing community here and had taken um, some classes with Grub, and so I applied to teach with them. And I'm going to be teaching for them the first time, as you said, in February. And that's online and totally asynchronous. Um, so I think it'll be convenient for for students. And is that like an essay writing workshop? It is, yeah. So it's four weeks, two essays. So they generate two essays and then um, revise one. Cool. That yeah. sounds fun. So you'll so you'll get some of that workshop experience. Maybe that'll help when you're applying to maybe teach workshops at Arizona. Here's hoping. <laughs> um, it seems like there's a ton of opportunities outside of the classroom. I know things are different right now with the pandemic, but um, according to the website, there's a reading and lecture series and a distinguished visitors and creative writing series, as well as opportunities to work with organizations like the Sonora Review um, and the Fairy Tale Review and others. I know you've done some editing for the Sonora Review. Can you Tell us a bit about that experience. Yeah, Sonora is great. Um, it's this totally student-run literary journal, which is pretty rare. You have a ton of literary journals affiliated with MFA programs, but very few of them don't have um, somebody who's paid to to help run them or to edit, which is Sonora's situation. It's all students. So I was managing editor last year. Um, things are a little bit different this year just because of pandemic, but it's been a really, really great experience. I would say it really drove home for me that we as grad students were getting to play a part in the literary ecosystem because I went to AWP for Sonora last spring and um, we hosted a reading and or co-hosted it. And um, it was really great because the the readers who came, I had brought, or I realized I needed to bookmark their pieces in the journal. So I was doing that frantically before. And then they all, I think every single one of them was like, oh, I'll actually just read it from my book. And they had all published books since with their Sonora piece collected in there. And so it was such a great way of seeing that, you know, even though we're students and students often don't feel like they have or don't have opportunities to kind of do the real versions of things rather than the student versions. We were, we are making a literary journal that consists of a real contribution to the publishing world. So it's, it's exciting. 
Absolutely. I would agree with that. Uh, Sonora Review is a great journal. And I didn't realize before, um, before like you told me that this was a completely student run literary journal, which I think is amazing. So like, have there been any specific things that you would say you've learned through the Sonora Review process that's helped you as a writer or submitter of your own work? Yeah, I definitely feel like it helps you understand that it's important to keep putting work out there because it's just, I think it's really, really great to witness just a lot of people um, continuing to submit work to us over years, like certain people keep on going. And I think it, it kind of reminds you, oh, I should be doing this too. This is part of a healthy writing life is to be actively submitting. Just submitting as much as possible. I don't know. I think um, everyone's sort of different with when they feel like something is ready. Right. But like MFAs, at least in my experience, the workshop model is really great at getting you to generate work and to some extent at getting you to revise it. But I think participating in Sonora reminds me that I shouldn't kind of let the road end there, that like whatever it means to try to get something to all the way you should, you should continue to do that. Yeah. I mean, um, in my experience, the MFA program has helped with all those things that you mentioned, but I still don't have like a great sense of how to submit, I guess, or if there's like a specific strategy for submitting or, um, when, like you said, it's ready to submit. So like, what, what does your strategy usually look like when you're submitting to journals? Um, it's fun that you asked that because I just met with um, Andrew Monson, who is one of our wonderful faculty members um, in nonfiction, although he writes everything. And I should say he's also our great um, faculty advisor for Sonora Review and gives us kind of a compass, which is really useful because a student-run organization, you cycle through the students that Ander um, remembers where we have been and where we want to go. But um, I met with him and asked him this question just like, how do you know when something is ready? And he helped me a lot with it. He said, like, when something has used up all of the heat that was in there, like all of the fuel that was in the piece has sort of like worked itself through, um, which which I find useful as a way to think about um, whether something is kind of ready. Um, he also talked about, he said some people he know will have like an incubation period. They finish something and then they make themselves not look at it for a certain amount of time. And then they like set a time where they have to go look at it. Is that something you do? Not really, but um, I just go through sort of feast and famine times, especially because I also um, pitch and participate in that world of publishing, which is different and sort of messy and quick. Um, but yeah, I think periodically I do try to to do that. Um, and then in, just in terms of like, I don't know how you feel about recommending paid um, resources, but I do subscribe to Duotrope. Um, I think it's $50 a year and it's um, a database on literary journals. And so they'll tell you acceptance rates and like when someone last heard back from the journal and um, I really like numbers, so I find that useful. And then they'll say, like, people who like this one also like this publication. And you can just sort of check around. And then also one thing I like to do is in the books of people whose work you admire, you can see where 
bits and pieces of that work has come out and look at those journals. That's a strategy I use as well. Um, the writers that I identify with, I'll look and see, especially where some of their earlier work was published, um, which I think is helpful. And I will just say that I absolutely um, um, prescribe to the idea that like, like when I get to a point where I feel like it's finished, I let it sit for an extended period of time and then come back to it with fresh eyes before I give it the okay for any kind of submitting. So yeah, I think that's that definitely a useful strategy for some people. And then outside of Sonora Review, what other opportunities have you experienced as a student at Arizona? For, for instance, there's that Visiting Writers series. Have you gotten to interact with any visitor visiting writers as a student yet? I have, yeah. So um, the University of Arizona has a really wonderful um, poetry center, which is a great resource. Also just like a really, really beautiful um building. And so it forms kind of a hub on campus for writing minded people. Um, and so we have visiting writers come through and then they'll give a reading and do a Q&A. But then we also, for our program, we have colloquium on Friday mornings. And very often the visiting writer will come to colloquium. So that's just the MFA students. And they'll do a Q&A with us, which is really, really lovely. And then you get to kind of ask them your burning questions and bask in their glory after hearing them read it's fun and you have donuts (laughs) it's always better with donuts right yeah um well it sounds like a good way to kind of help build community as well like have, have you found that the community in the program and around tucson is is pretty strong yeah i think tucson is a great um city if you're artsy it's a funny size in that um like for me it felt tiny because you can get to where anybody is in 15 minutes. And for a lot of my friends who are coming from, in some cases, far more rural places, it felt like really, really, really urban, even to have like parking meters, things like that. So it obviously depends on where you're coming from. But yeah, it is. um, It's a it's a good town to be an artist. And yeah, the the program community is, um, is strong as well, which is great. It's it's an interesting size. Um, it's a little bit, I mean, it's funny. I think of it as a little bit large just in comparison to other fully funded programs. So like on the website, it said there were about 36 students in the program at any one time. Is that right? Yeah. Those numbers are a little different right now because of, um, pandemic, but yeah. Um, in regular years, 36. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much variation in programs. And just as you said, like how someone might think that Tucson is either a big or a small town compared to what they're used to. I I think some people would say 36 students is a fairly small program and some people would say it's a fairly big program. Um, Do you find that like you're taking workshops with like different students each time or is there like a lot of the same people in each class? There is a lot of variation in who's in classes. Um, Part of that, I think, is because Arizona um, really encourages cross-disciplinary work. So you have to take a craft course in a genre other than your own, and you're invited to take workshops in genres other than your own. Um, So we'll often see some... One funny thing about our program is usually by the end, at least one person from a genre other than nonfiction has crossed over into nonfiction, which I love because nonfiction kind of gets short shrift in a lot of settings, but we're like the, 
the fun genre everyone wants to switch to. Well, uh, there's been a few people in my program who've done the exact same thing. So there must be something about uh, nonfiction that s- some of us aren't realizing until we get into this program. So I, I want to also ask you about like work life and writing balance. Um, Cause before pursuing the MFA, you spent two years working on your book project while working a job and you told me that you've continued to freelance for magazines as a student alongside your teaching and editing. So how do you manage it all? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that I do better when I have stuff in my day, like at least one fixed block. I don't like to kind of stare at a completely empty calendar. I write in really small bursts um, and I don't want to feel like, oh, I have to write for, you know, just the entire workday today. But um, I think these things really feed each other, at least for me. Like I write a lot of, um, I do some op-ed stuff, which is kind of quick and political and um, uses really different muscles from the MFA work. And so I like that as a sort of rejuvenation. Like if you've been, you know, working on a 20 page essay for months and then you like pitch and write and finish and see in print like a 750 word thing. It's, it's really exciting. It's like a snack. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so do you think like um, having all these obligations will benefit you as a writer in the, in the future? Yeah. I, I really like all the kinds of work that I do. I feel like every career has trade-offs, but, and, and people look at writing and they say, oh, it's insecure and it's not paid well enough. And those things are true and they shouldn't be. But the great thing is you get to do the things that you love and kind of only those things. I mean, teaching 101 can have its tiring aspects. Sure. As like anything can, but, um, the students make up for it. So yeah, I think for me personally, I like having a bunch of different kinds of things to work on. Well, I know that one thing I hear uh, a lot is that sometimes after leaving the MFA program, students um, can sometimes have trouble finding time to write because they're not used to having like other obligations like a job. So I can imagine having that experience where you're used to having the job and like continuing to do freelance work while you're in the program could prepare you for post-MFA um, when you'll have other things on your plate besides just these things that um, feed into the writing itself? Yeah, I think so. I think I kind of hoped that the MFA would be this like sort of dreamy universe where I could sort of float around on the breeze and be happy doing that and just be like thinking about my project all day and waking up at odd hours to scribble. And then I got there and realized that like, that is some people's actual way of being a writer in the world, but it's just not me. And that's fine. Yeah. I mean, it would be, you know, fun and glamorous, I guess, but I've made <laughs> peace with not being that person. And yeah, I mean, I think like, I kind of really loved like working bef- or writing before work because it's sort of like, it feels like you're stealing away this time and it's like this exciting moment of your day when it becomes your main job that can be a little oppressive. Yeah. And I think just like with process, I mean, there's no 
tried and true way to to do this, right? I mean, it's it's really person to person where somebody needs like a lot of extra time to let their story percolate. Some people need like some structure and need other things going on to like clear their mind of it. Um, so you just got to figure that out for yourself for sure. Um, and then I wanted to talk about um, the fact that according to the website, the University of Arizona MFA program won't be accepting students for fall 2021 because they don't have the budget to fund everyone. Um, it, I respect that decision, but it's a bummer. Uh, have you heard anything on this front and whether they're planning to accept students again in 2022? Yeah, it's it's really too bad that they weren't able to um, to take um, anyone for this current cycle. I know that that decision was made based on um, basically they didn't they only wanted to offer spots if they could fund and they didn't want to leave people in this sort of strange, ambiguous, confused place. Um, as for next year, I think I'm hopeful. Everybody's hopeful, but we haven't heard one way or the other. So unfortunately, I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I, I can respect the decision because um, I imagine that there's a, a lot of programs right now who have lost their budget and therefore are still going to accept students, but maybe we not be able to fund them uh, as much as they normally would. But um, it's nice that they're at least doing what they think is the right thing and what I, I think is probably the right thing, but it is a bummer, super bummer. So before we finish up, I want to give you the last word. Having experienced writing while working versus writing in an MFA program, is there any advice that you have for anyone considering doing one or the other? Um, I love that question. I guess... I mean, I'm a really spreadsheety human being. Like I applied to an embarrassing number of MFA programs. Um, if you're very like data E like me, I found it really comforting to do the working plus writing at the same time for a while because it allowed me to deepen my writing, like you said at the beginning of our conversation, to take it as far as I could. Because then, I mean... I felt like I was writing my application essays pretty earnestly because I, I really needed the things that the programs were offering. And I knew that because I had spent a couple of years working as far as I could on my own. So for me, I think that was useful. And I think also just graduate school is a big commitment and moving across the country is hard if you end up doing that. And um, financially, it's it's fraught to do an MFA, even if it's fully funded, just because of the realities of stipends and lost income and all these things. So spending that time working and also writing, I think, can help confirm that big decision down the road. Um, but at the same time, I think if, if folks know that they want to apply for an MFA, there are definitely advantages to doing it soon. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it was so nice to talk to you. Um, I hope you get back to Arizona soon. I hope we're all back in person soon. But while you're in New, Link New England, and enjoy the nature as much as you can while you're up there. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was really fun. I really appreciate it.